Welcome to Bamsey's Humanity First Podcast. I am Chris Ryan from the Bamsey Worldwide Headquarters in Brockton, Massachusetts, joined by the President and CEO of Bamsey, Peter Evers. Peter, how are you? I'm well, thanks, I am also well and uh, excited to have our guest here today. Tell us a little bit what we're talking about to, on the podcast. Yeah, very excited to have Sandy Reynolds here with us today. Hi, Sandy. How are you doing? Good. How are you? Thank um, you. I'm good. Um, and Sandy is the director of our adult day treatment program in Brockton and has been for the last seven years. Uh, so you are a veteran, Sandy. <laughs> um, and in fact, the building that you're in is a veteran building. And, and we'll talk about this a little bit as we talk perhaps a little bit about how BAMSI is utilizing space, which we've talked about before. But the program is coming up to the end of the lease. And I think that's going to be a milestone because that building, which used to be the Brockton Firehouse, um, is has been the longest inhabited BAMSI uh, program uh, that was started some 40 years ago. Yes, yes. Uh, so a lot of history in that building and a lot of leaking roofs, I think, as well. <laughs> <laughs> it might be something to do with the fact that we're looking for somewhere else um, just to, uh, to provide the program. But, um, Sonny, um, talk to me a little bit about the program because um, when we talk about providing services with people who have... Um, who struggle with uh, mental illness, we talk about a continuum of care, don't we? We talk yes. about those people who we might have in our GLEs, in our group home living um, uh, places. But we're also providing a lot of um, nursing in, in some programs, like our ACCS program. But this piece is really more about the, thera- the therapeutic intervention, isn't it, that people have? in these uh, day programs. And it's very distinct. So could you talk a little bit about it? Absolutely. So BMC's Adult Day Treatment Program is a psychiatric day treatment. Um, we're funded through MassHealth. And the members that go there, they have to have a mental health diagnosis. But more importantly, they have to have symptoms of thought, mood, or behavioral disorders. And they have to lack skill or have some significant um, impairment in their functioning of maybe emotional or social skills, um, inability to hold a job or maybe continue with the education um, or maybe having difficulty with self-care. So what we do is we people can self-refer or providers can refer. We set up intake with a person, meet with them for about an hour, um, just try to get to know the person, try to focus on the person as a whole and not just their mental illness because so many people are defined by their mental illness and they're much more than that. Um, And then we set up a date for them to start. They can come three to five days a week, Monday through Friday. Um, And while they're there, they're able to, they actually, they make a treatment plan, pick some goals that they want to work on. And then we pick a group schedule for them. So they may want to do some psychoed groups such as DBT skills or symptom management. They may be a little less able to do that, so want to do some social skills groups or art therapy, expressive art groups, um, or maybe just some talking groups where they can just get their feelings out and feel supported. Um, now, yeah. from what I understand, you know, success is defined on an individualized level. But what have been some of the successes that you've been most proud of in regard to this program? And it can be, you know, what would be seen as "quote unquote" little things. Um, but any, you know, success and path forward to a better environment is is seen as success. So, what what is what does success look like at times uh, in the program? 
well, pre-COVID, um, I we were doing phenomenal. We um, increased our capacity probably probably by double. Um, and I think a lot of it had to do with changing the way that we had the members look at the program. It, it, rather than looking at it as treatment, even though that is our main focus, I wanted them to focus on it being their community and mm-hmm. something that they could own and go and feel comfortable and feel normal, you know, quote unquote. Um, and I think that's really helped them grow tremendously. Um, we went from just having, you know, the regular groups that now we do surveys every year. And we ask them what they're interested in and we'll change the group schedule for that. Um, we get their input month weekly on community meetings for things. Um, they decide we sell lunch there. They mm-hmm. they prepare lunch there, and we were charging a dollar for lunch. And they decided that the food is better than that, so they wanted to. Ch- they were willing to pay two dollars for lunch, so we could give them some better choices. Um, we sat at a garden in the back of the building, and we used the vegetables from the garden to make some of the lunches. Um, this year, we just started improving the community group, so they're looking at ways to improve the program, but also the outside community. We make we have a fabric arts group where they make art, where they make um, scarves and hats, and they donate them to the Cope program and some to the WIC program. Um, so it's really about being part of something, and it's it's just a great feeling. You know, you walk in there and you see them supporting each other and um, just smiles everywhere and happy to be there, always greeting each other. It's just, it's a great feeling. Yeah, so I have lots of questions. So um, if we could just go back to, because people might be wondering, well, if they have a loved one who is struggling with um, with uh, mental illness, um, how do you get into this program? So, you know, you've described a lot of um, symptoms and a lot of behaviors. Is this a closed referral program to the Department of Mental Health? It is not. We are not funded by the Department of Mental Health. We're funded through Mass Health. Um, so anybody can refer to the program, including themselves. Someone could call and say, I'd like to go, you know, I'd like to come there. Could you tell me about the program? Providers can refer, families can refer. I mean, we do have um, referrals from DMH. And the people who are in the program, we have people there who have their master's degree. We have people from the bachelor's, we have mothers, fathers. Um, transgender, different cultural groups. We have people who have difficulty or learning disabilities, some people who've had traumatic brain injuries in the past, and somehow we get them all to come together in the same group and support each other and get something out of it. And I think that says a lot about the community and the staff that work there. Um, They really, really try hard to get everyone to understand that they are not defined by their illness, they're defined by everything, everything. They're all inclusive. And there's an awful lot of longevity in the staff as well, right? Yes, there is. Yes. We have one staff who's been there for 20 years, I believe. And that continuity of care is really important. And you know what's interesting to me is, and I wanted to make that distinction because oftentimes a lot of these programs are closed referral and you have to go through eligibility with the Mm -hmm. department. You don't have to do that because it's a Medicaid program. But, you know, what strikes me as interesting when, when I visited uh, the program was 
that this is not your grandfather's psychiatric day treatment. You know, no. And, and, and how you've been describing it is, is transformational in a way, because we've moved away from this, you know, treatment-based medical model, although we're still, that, that's still important. But we've included almost organically this notion of people helping people, this idea of people with lived experiences coming together and sharing their stories of their recovery and, you know, of their losses, I'm sure. Um, because I think one of the things, especially with the serious emphasis on men- mentally ill population, is isolation is the thing Absolutely. that really, really curtails lives. You know, I've said it before on this program that um, the Obama administration's uh, certain general uh, opined that more people die of loneliness than they do of cancer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when we do some of our work at uh, Dawn Davis and we go into the into the tower blocks, you meet people who are living desperately quiet lives. Mm-hmm. And this idea of people being mentally ill are often withdrawn. They're often thinking that the world is a is a, a hostile place because mm-hmm. they've experienced that. Um, in some ways, I often think that mental illness is the last bastion of prejudice. You know, the, you, the language Absolutely. that we use is, uh, is when, it, when you break it down, you listen to a television show, that language is prevalent. You're hearing that when you're struggling. And that the idea of coming together as a group and sharing those experiences and feeling that sense of inclusion is as powerful as a medication in life. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And the medication, you know, a lot of times we have people who, we do have people who were institutionalized for some time at Taunton State um, who are now living in group homes, um, thankfully from BMZ. Some people live independently. Um, a lot of them are unable to drive, so thankfully we can get um, transportation through what they call PT1s through Mass Health, so they're not isolated in their homes. Um, but I always tell them, you know, when they start talking about their diagnosis, like, I'm schizophrenic or I I have bipolar, it's like, well, you have high blood pressure too. You don't walk around saying, I'm high blood pressure. And I think that's really important to point out to people with mental illness, like it's just a small part of you and it doesn't... You know, it doesn't have to rule your life. And they're there to try to learn how to kind of accept that and push it aside. And let's talk about what strengths you have and and how to get over the labels. Because in a couple of years from now, your diagnosis could change when the manual changes. Yeah, yeah I think that's a really good point. We were talking you know, earlier, Peter and I, um, for the show about how certain instances or um, aspects of an individual uh, defines them or even institutions. And I think that it is very important for uh, those individuals to not see a mental illness as being a um, inhibitor um, to the point of which you cannot have um, success and that that is what clearly you know, defines you and that it is a larger part of the narrative of who you are. And it's okay. You know, it's – you don't – automatically identify with having high blood pressure or with diabetes because it's not a big deal right? right i mean it's a part of your it's a part of who you are it's a part of your dna it's a part of your your life and you know for you to either go one of two ways where you seek to hide everything because you are embarrassed about it or that you feel like you have to tell people because you know you um don't want them to find out you'd rather that you were the person that told them it's a very interesting you know, dynamic, and I'm interested in your thoughts on that. I mean, what are the best ways for 
a individual to um, compartmentalize their mental health status? Should it be something that they are you know, seeking to um, to talk about? Should it be something that you are are trying to create an environment where you you know, just keep it internalized. How, what's the best path? And I guess it's kind of for each person. But what do you think is the best path for someone that um, is feeling these things? Has something that's been identified? I think with the way the world is now, I mean, definitely the stigma has lowered. Um, I wouldn't say it's lowered significantly. I think COVID has helped because it's a lot of people because of COVID have um, been diagnosed with mental illness, whether it be general anxiety disorder or um, depression or whatever it may be. I, the people in our program are at different stages in their life. Like I have some who I think would be great peer support specialists. They may not have the confidence yet, but I think they're there. So they would have the strength and ability to actually start talking about their mental illness and feel a little more comfortable. I don't think people have to go out there and, again, say, I have schizophrenia or um, what are the diagnoses? Because, again, we don't walk around saying what, that we have high blood pressure. We don't, we don't walk around talking about that. Um, but we do have to accept that it is part of us. And I think that if you're in a comfortable space and you're with people who you feel comfortable and supported by, it's okay to talk about it. You know, it's okay in groups. I have groups a lot of times that – People will say, oh, I'm so nervous about going to the dentist tomorrow. And, mm-hmm. and I will say, oh, my goodness, I I can't stand going to the dentist. Like, I can't, you're doing such a great job. I can't even tell you have an appointment. If I had an appointment tomorrow, my hands would probably be shaking. So you got to ha- kind of normalize things because a lot of things they go through, everyone goes through. Maybe just not as large. This is kind of a generalized question for both of you. And I've been talking with a lot of um government officials about circumstances surrounding substance misuse um, and mental illness and homelessness. And very often the public officials will say, well, the people just don't, they don't want to, this isn't a good time for them to get, they don't want to get treatment. They don't want to go into um, a scenario where they're being, uh, the the treatment is being required, etc. How do you create an environment where an individual wants to seek treatment? Can you do it, or does the time just come about where they make that that decision? Um, because you look at the landscape of many communities across this country, and there is pervasive um, substance misuse and emotional distress that you see on a day-in, day-out basis on the streets of this country. And people want to help, help individuals. They want to, to create an environment where they – are, are helped and are able to go and get the treatment that they they need and to, to live productive lives. But the public officials and nonprofits will very often say, well, we've tried. We know who they are. Um, we've reached out, and it's just not something they're comfortable with doing right now. So how do we how do we create an environment where this starts to, to work perhaps better than it seems like it is? Wow. Well, I mean, I think, I think Sandy nailed it to begin with by saying, well, you know, we're changing the conversation around addiction, about the, about the diseases of the brain. We're beginning to talk about these as diseases rather than life mm-hmm. choices. And as you begin to have that conversation, you align some of those things with other chronic diseases, like diabetes, for instance, which, by the way, the CDC would tell us that the, re- the recovery 
rates of those people with, with mental illness are much higher than those people with the chronic illness of yes. diabetes. So then you begin to say, wait a minute, this is a disease. There is a pathway to recovery. People recover. They're not defined by their mental illness. They have other things going on in their lives. Many of them work, and models like IPS, um, which is the uh, individual placement support for people with mental illness, have proved that those folks can be more mm -hmm. um, productive than, than people who don't have mental illness. Telling those stories, we've talked about this, telling the people who are successful or celebrities in our, in our culture who speak about their struggles with anxiety. You know, GAD, uh, general anxiety disorder is the most diagnosed condition mm -hmm. in America, which is extraordinary. Uh, but if it's the most diagnosed condition, why is there a um, stigma to it? Because you've got masses of people, and people are talking about it. We're normalizing conversations. We're normalizing illnesses. So suddenly pick up on that. I, I totally agree. I think that we have to we have a long way to go as far as getting rid of stigma. Um, I, th I think it's great that these celebrities are now coming forward and saying, you know, the different mental illnesses that they are dealing with um, or mental health challenges that they have. Um, as far as substance abuse, I've, I think a lot more needs to be done as far as educating the community, the families involved, because substance abuse is tricky. And it's not a choice for people. It's it's their way of coping with things. And I think when it, it gets really difficult when you have a family member who is struggling with substance mm -hmm. abuse because you don't – you take it personally a lot of times or you don't understand, like, that's that's not your son. That's, that's the drug mm -hmm. taking over his body. And I think there needs to be a lot of education. And if we could get more families or more supports to kind of – surround the person when they're in treatment and, and almost become part of the treatment and learn what they have to do when they leave the facilities or what they're learning, I think that would help tremendously because we have people going to treatment, but then they're going back to where they came from. Yeah, I think people also need to have a better understanding of what treatment is mm -hmm. and what it encompasses, particularly if you are in a substance misuse circumstance, you are using the substance to ease your pain. There is, as we talked about last week, there is no just say no. Um, a person is using that substance because they like to use that substance. Because They're self-medicating. Right. It is easing, generally speaking, because it is easing some sort of um, pain that an individual feels, and it brings them to a place um, where you know they are more happy, they think, at that point in time. So there's that aspect of, okay, if I stop doing this, what is the detrimental effects going to be on me as a result of that? And the status quo then becomes better than what you have anticipatory anxiety about um, what the next steps are going to, to look like. So generally speaking, there is that generalized anxiety disorder um, that, that exists and is pervasive in a lot of individuals with substance misuse. And um, anticipatory anxiety as well. So I think that there just has to be a, a better pathway to treatment where there is a understanding of what treatment is and what it looks like because I think that very often individuals are fearful of treatment. They are fearful that their life is going to get worse. This may not be optimal, but this is my life now and it's okay. No matter what that situation is. And 
they need to see that there's more of a positive to treatment than what their current status is. So how do you think you, how does your program go about, you know, doing that and creating a pathway for an individual who, you know, may, even if they've hit rock bottom, they may think that there's a little bit further that they can drop. At, so at ADT, we do not have a large majority of people who are struggling with substance abuse Mm -hmm. right now. Um, but having said that, there are people, there are some, and we, it's a journey. It's, it's part of life. Um, you know, don't think that you're going to stop it and fix it and it's gone. It's, it's an addiction that you have. There's going to be hills in, in the road. And if you relapse, that's okay. Just get right back on and, you know, you're going to have supports. And it's important to help them realize who their supports are. And, and don't just reach out to them when you're not doing well. Mm-hmm. Reach out to them when you are doing well. And um, try to just help them get a system together and really, really put a lot of focus on what their strengths are and how far they've come. And I think I totally agree. And I think, you know, it gets back to community again, doesn't yes. it? Yes. And, you know, oftentimes people who struggle with addiction have consorted with people who have also struggled with addiction and, and, and that has not helped. But when when people do reach that point where they're where they where they've had enough, where they're at rock bottom. And by the way, there's all sorts of reasons why people decide that they want to enter recovery. And there to me, and I learned this lesson running a detox, because as a therapist I thought, oh you've got to wanna be mm-hmm. it's got to come mm-hmm. from you. No, it doesn't. It doesn't really matter. If there's a hook, then take it. If it is that you that you want to see more of your kids. If if it is mm-hmm. that you need to fix your relationship you know put 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 your hat on that hook because that is an that is an entryway to somebody feeling different than they felt for years and years waking up every day needing to use and it's not a choice at that point you're right at some point it is a choice Mm -hmm. but there are so many reasons why people have to make those choices and 65% of people who struggle with mental illness also struggle Struggle with addiction that's not a coincidence Mm -hmm. and and you talked about self-medication but it is finally I know you want me to show up but (laughs) I'm the only one that gets the long statement (laughs) (laughs) it is your show but I do think there's a societal point to this as well, which is we need to have a public health strategy yes. for addiction rather than a public safety strategy for addiction. Absolutely. Business about locking people up with a disease. And granted, bad things happen to our communities when people struggle with addiction, and it's, it isn't like cancer in that way, but every other way it is, and we need to treat it like that. And, oh, can I say one Yeah, thing? go ahead. Um, I also think that it's really important that was – great how you said you know if you if you want to see your kids then jump on that hook but also realize that it's a journey you know you can't you're not just going to stop and see your kids there's a lot of changes that you have to make in life and there's these supports have to be in place i think it's really important also um like you said the community has to be there but also the police department needs further training i feel in different areas of mental illness or substance use and why people are you know the way that they are. It's they're not. A lot of times, it isn't a choice. And how you can better, better manage their symptoms or what's going on with them to get them treatment, rather than just lock them up and, 
you know, have them go through detox in a prison cell and then just let them go. Me as much as anybody, I like quick fixes. We all like quick fixes, mm-hmm. right? We like things that are going to get things done easily and not cause pain and, and make things turn a different direction. But from a societal and personal level, um, there has to be an understanding of the complexities, the challenges, and the length of uh, recovery. I mean, recovery is a lifetime, literally a lifetime. Absolutely. And we aren't going to create an environment in which um, this path that we've gone down uh, in regard to mental health and substance misuse is going to get fixed in one term for a politician. It is something that is has to be invested upon from a, a cradle-to-grave type of perspective and creating an environment uh, and understanding that there's not more mental illness today than there was before. There's more of a recognition of mental illness than there was before. We just assumed that all people were bad in the past, good guys, bad guys, cops, criminals, and those, there's all this very oversimplified view of our society. And now people are talking openly about the fact, well, you know, it's not necessarily that people are bad. It's that they are very often making decisions based upon um, – the circumstance that they find themselves in from a financial perspective, from a mental health perspective, and from a addiction perspective. And asking why can often be very expensive um, and very problematic in the fact that we are looking for simple answers. But the why factor is how we fix this from a a long-term perspective. And I'm curious from both your thoughts, I mean, is there – both, as you mentioned, you've been doing this for seven years. Peter's been doing it for longer than that. Um, do you feel that – how do you feel that things have changed and have they changed in a in a positive sense in um, addressing these issues? I, I think right now we're – I don't want to say we're in turmoil, but there are a lot of things going on in our society right now that um, contribute to – mental illness can contribute to substance abuse. So we have a long way to go. I feel like there's a lot of people stepping up and really pushing and advocating for positive change. Um, I do feel that it would be very helpful if prior to working with adults, I worked with children and adolescents for 20-something years. And I feel like if they learned more about managing their emotions and um, they don't have to, I don't think people have to have a mental illness or a diagnosis to learn how to manage your emotions better or different positive things to do instead of turning to drugs because you're not sure how to how to cope. Um, I think if that was integrated into schools and maybe daycares and things of that nature, it, I think that would help our society in the long run. Um, definitely. I think it's integral. Um, if if we're going to solve this from a long-term perspective, the integration into public schools and a discussion and uh, knowledge of mental health care is integral to making those changes. Looking at, um, obviously, the prison system and how things work from that perspective, policing, as we've talked about, and the reformation of um, how we go about utilizing funds for corrections and law enforcement and sending things in a a different direction. There always seems to be money available for prisons and for um, you know various other aspects around uh, incarceration. 
how do we change that in to investing in the wellness and recovery of individuals as opposed to a um a system that right now does not create a lot of advantageous benefits for our communities yeah i mean i think that's i think the shift something you know things happen in society that push things along a little bit and i think you know the murder of george floyd was a perfect example of that and and, and in some ways we were on the coattails of that a little bit because mm-hmm. it is like well actually this myth of equality in our society has mm-hmm. been unveiled a little bit there is no equality or equity in this society and people are beginning to have those conversations and then with that i think comes not the defunding of the police because that's silly but but the, the reallocation i was thinking the other day actually, i had this thought i'm a social worker and i've been <laughs> for a long time but why aren't you why isn't the police force employing social workers yep so that there are you know emotionally sort of uh, trained people who uh, maybe they carry guns can you imagine a social worker i don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but, but who ride along and there's so many examples in boston we had it without it when i worked in psychiatric crisis we had ride alongs it's called sequential intercept this idea of making the intervention with somebody before they get arrested and diverting them to drug court or whatever that work might be. That thinking is happening now. There's so much more public safety because, you know, some governments get elected on this notion of law and order, whatever right. that is. But that makes people feel safe. Meanwhile, there's a lack of safety because so many people struggle with addiction. So I think... I think, again, this is a generation-to-generation issue yep. that we will solve eventually, but it's going to take an awful long time. Absolutely. Yeah, I feel like the we've seen, you know, in some ways positive shifts, in other ways not, where, as we were talking about before, we are in kind of this team sport, good and bad type of environment, it feels like, and we like to label things that are different than us um, or have different uh, beliefs than us as being bad. But I also feel from a societal perspective that, we are in more of a gray area, particularly on these topics where people don't view individuals as being good or bad as much as perhaps they, they used to. Like in the past, the criminals were bad. and this like that. Now I feel like everyone has that perspective of everybody has their own stuff and there's reasons for why things happen. And there, I think that there is more of a tolerance and understanding of the frailty and flaws of human beings – and an acknowledgement of a gray area that exists amongst all of us, where um, we are all, you know, a bad circumstance away from something bad happening to us or us going in the wrong direction. And we all have our, you know, innermost thoughts, and some of them are good and some of them are bad. Um, I, I It's weird because I feel like we're kind of going in these different directions where we're becoming more tribal, but in some ways we're also – you know, more understanding of uh, the human condition. Yeah, I mean, I, I think so. I mean, it, it is it is strange that those two things can exist at the same time. But we don't, we had this conversation before, we don't like nuances in this culture right now, you know, mm-hmm. because it's, you know, certain politicians survive by dividing. Um, but I will say, and I remember going to see a certain politician called uh, Hillary Clinton speak um at, uh, in New Hampshire, and she asked this question. She said, who in the audience, uh, stand up people in the audience who have not been affected in their family through, uh, uh, through addiction? And nobody stood up. Wow. Nobody stood up. So 
then you begin to think, well, in that case, and I can say clearly that my family was blighted by alcohol, by a, a returning grandfather father from the First World War who self-medicated um, shell shock, if you mm-hmm. like, um, by drinking himself and his family into distress. That, has that had an effect on me? Yes, of course it has. Now we're talking about these stories about family survival and how they've you know, coped, maladaptively coped, whatever that mm-hmm. was. Everybody has a story like that. And when we do that, we do get into nuances, Chris, don't we? Because we don't, we, the first thing we think is, that's not a bad person. The first thing we might think is, oh, I recognize that from yeah. my own family. On concussions and sports, and all the you know, person got their bell rung, and you know oh, that, that person's just a little slow. Yeah. Now, I mean, all these, yeah, yeah, right, and all these, all these things have have evolved. So we spent a lot of time talking about the uh, the edges of society where things have gotten worse, or you know, things that indicate that perhaps we're heading in the, the wrong direction. There's a lot of positives as well, and I think that this is an area where there have been a lot of positives, but there's certainly a, a lot more um, you know, area to, uh, to expand, and we'll give uh, Sandra the last thought here. <laughs> um, no, I totally agree, and I think going back to when you saw Hillary Clinton speak, that speaks volumes because until you can actually connect to what's going on, you have you you just think it's just a, from a different planet, you know. I think we can all say, or, or I know, I even myself can say that I've you know I've had addictions in my family, and alcohol is is a great example because it's so accepted in the society and in plenty of cultures in the world. Um, that's that's what you do, you know. You all drink and be merry, and then, but then what when you when you leave like. People don't understand that, that that's something that can actually really destroy lives. And I really think that they need to, a lot of us need to get educated and kind of maybe change our way of thinking of how to, um, how to express ourselves and how to be joyful. And it's going to take a lot. But even just the small changes, I think we should grasp onto and continue to move forward and not let the, you know, things push us back and not give up because if we give up then who's going to try to move forward (laughs) Sandra thank you so much thank you Sandra Reynolds director of BAMSI's adult day treatment center joining us here on the humanity first podcast for Peter Evers I am Chris Ryan have a great rest of the day everybody